railways are part of our country's heritage, and for many of us, a regular part of our lives. What can we learn from the past to ensure train travel is safer than ever in the 21st century? This is Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth. In this series, we're exploring how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. This time, we find out how a growing historical database of railway accidents could inform increased safety on the tracks today and be a useful resource for exploring long-lost family stories. Today, we meet Dr. Mike Esbester, a senior lecturer in history at the University of Portsmouth. He is combining his love of history with a childhood passion. I'm interested in all sorts of transport in the past, but particularly the railways. I was fortunate enough to be able to put it together in my love for history and then that's led on into a focus on accidents, accident prevention and safety. Thanks to Mike, his colleagues and an army of volunteers, the lives of railway workers that might have been lost to history are available online for everyone to access. And those stories are already helping enhance rail safety today. Mike's interest in trains started as a young boy. His dad loved locomotives, lived near a railway line and passed his passion on to his son. And whilst Mike is far too young to remember steam trains outside of museums and heritage lines, he has a deep appreciation for the history of rail. I've been taken to steam lines as a child. They're fantastic beasts, they're kind of living, breathing things almost, but they're mechanical, of course, so they're not actually living. So there's just something kind of quite, how does it work? As a child, that initial kind of thing is huge thing in front of you. It's just this kind of enthralling thing that does work. And yes, it's just quite interesting, quite exciting. But don't be fooled. It's not all steam trains and heritage museums. Mike's work at the University of Portsmouth is very much embedded in the 21st century, with the past informing the very different present. It's about understanding where we've got to. No historian is ever going to claim that what they've done in the past is going to be applicable and immediately something that can change the world here and now by just doing what was done in the past. That's just not how the past works. Things were very, very different. What we can do with the past is try and understand how things happened, why they happened, who was involved, what it all meant. And then, particularly when you get to really modern subjects like mine, how we've shaped the world around us today in very, very tangible forms and very, very tangible ways, why we act the way that we do, why we're instructed in the way that we are. And once we understand that, that helps us see both kind of the conditions that, that led to that, but also well, what assumptions were made at the time that we might want to question now. What could we do differently? It is a question of thinking about that critically and then applying that and saying, OK, this is how we got to here. What could we do differently now as a result? And yeah, what could we change in the future? For the better. And the railways certainly have challenges in the present time. One of the key issues in recent union strikes, aside from pay and conditions, has been the reduction of rail workers, potentially risking passenger and employee safety. The RMT union's argument is that if you reduce the number of workers maintaining the tracks, in particular, but all parts of the system, then there's likely to be safety implications for that. Now, they do the work. They know this from their perspective. Obviously, the network rail and the companies involved come from a different perspective on that. What we've seen in the past is that at periods of economising, 
where workers have been reduced in numbers or their work's increased, you have got accidents happening to the workforce, uh, not necessarily to the, the passenger services, but there are implications there as well. So we see this in the past, particularly, again, the RMT union's predecessor, the National Union Railwaymen, was vociferous in the 1920s, saying if you withdraw the number of people or lower the number of people maintaining tracks, there's going to be accidents. There are going to be problems, both to the workers themselves, but potentially also to the passengers, because you don't have enough people to do the job. You don't have enough time to do the job. Something's got to give. It can't just keep happening. Time for a quick history lesson. Trains have been a key part of British infrastructure for a long time, well before the 1920s. So what did things look like in the golden age of rail? So 19th century, there's a huge kind of expansion in the railway industry. It reaches its height in terms of route mileage in a period just before the First World War. And at that point, you've got around 640,000 people working in some form on the railways. That could be engine drivers and firemen. They all were men at this point. That could be the men, again, all men maintaining the tracks at this point. But it was down to things like hotels, the clerical staff. They always had shipping interests, for example. So really all sorts of roles. And not just men working on the railways as well, I should say. It's plenty of women, again, around the time of the First World War, about 13,000 or so women at work on the railways in roles that were deemed kind of socially appropriate at that time. So sempstresses in laundry roles as waiting staff in hotels, those kind of roles as well. Aside from the staffing in the tea rooms, it won't surprise you to hear that the overall railway workforce reduced in the middle of the 20th century. The railway industry has undergone several periods of contraction, not least from the rise of the motor car in the 1920s, 1930s, but really into the 1950s, everyone tends to think of the beaching cuts in the 1960s and onwards, and that is absolutely true, but there were plenty of cuts before those as well. And with that's come a reduction in numbers of staff. And also technology has changed. In terms of, for example, the track workers, you used to have to do everything manually. It was a physical job. If you wanted to take a length of rail out, you had to have a team of men to pick the rail up and put a new one in. These days, the track comes in panels, they have machines that will do this, so you need immensely fewer people to do that work. So I don't have an exact number for the staff employed now, but it is massively reduced both because of the route mileage change and because of the, the technological changes. The headcount of staff on the railways has changed, but the treatment of employees and their families has also improved. Things were very different in the 1800s. Rail industry was one of, of several that kind of saw itself as being paternalistic, so kind of asked itself as a family and then they said, oh, you know, if you're injured at work, we'll look after you in some way. And what that tended to mean was you might be re-employed if they could find light work for you, but you'd be paid less as well. You'd lose out. Things change a bit as you get towards the end of the 19th century when you get, certainly within the rail industry, but a few others as well, factory work, mining, an automatic right, a near automatic right to compensation. So, again, the schedule of, of particular injuries will get you this much, and death it tends to be somewhere between about 250 and 300 pounds at that point, which was a considerable sum in some ways, but also, just thinking purely financially, still might not have been enough to sustain a family, in particular a large family. But obviously, it doesn't cover the, the emotional costs and distress involved. Within the rail industry, one of the companies, in fact, what was the local company to us in Portsmouth, the London and South Western Railway, set up an orphanage for children of workers who had been killed at work or if the worker was injured they might receive a certain amount of money every week or every month to make up the cost 
that had been incurred as a result of the disability. So there was some form of support, but it was kind of quite patchy and it depended a bit on you know, whether you're a member of the trade union or not, whether you're paying into the right fund or not, what your company was going to do for you and so on. So in, in that sense, in the 19th and on into the 20th centuries, there was an increasing amount of provision, increasing amount of support, but it was by no means perfect. With fewer people working on the railways a century on, there's unsurprisingly a lower accident count. That's basic statistics. But standards have changed too. Standards have improved and frankly, attitudes have improved. The safety culture that we have now is not perfect. And unfortunately, there are still fatalities every year. But what we do have is a much kind of a stronger attitude of, well, it's a responsibility of all of us from the top down to do something about accidents, to try to prevent them. In the past, before 1948, if there was an accident and an investigation, the kind of default seems to be, oh, it was a worker being careless, a kind of worker behaviour. Whereas now, with Network Rail, they have a, what they call a fair culture. The very last thing they will look to blame or look to ascribe responsibility towards, it's not blame, ascribe responsibility, is the worker. They'll look at other factors. Are we asking them to do too much? Have we asked them to work longer hours than they should have been or more shifts than they should have had? Was it something about the way that the work was set up? How was the risk managed? Was it not managed correctly? Only if they can rule out all of those other factors will they say, actually, you know, fundamentally there's something here that the worker should have done differently. Welcome aboard the Southern Service to London, Victoria. And alongside changes in culture, technology on the railways has developed at some rate. Whilst there remains the need for humans to be working next to or on the tracks for repair and maintenance, digital solutions are keeping them safer than ever before. From the 1960s, they started developing technology, particularly about track laying, think about worker safety here, which effectively took the large gangs off. So if you wanted to change track, you had to get a gang of men out onto the track and they would physically shift the stuff. Whereas now there's machines that will do very clever stuff. They effectively kind of remove the ballast, the stones underneath the, the rail lines, take the rails up, get the sleepers, the things that rails sit on, out, and lay new ones all in a kind of seamless manoeuvre. It's like some sort of magic, frankly. So there's fixes like that, which are really very kind of physical fixes. There's also increasingly digital solutions in terms of the signalling, so allowing trains into spaces where other trains aren't, keeping trains apart from each other, but keeping trains out of spaces that workers are in as well. Those make it much more practical to say, actually, you know, we don't want to work on this whole stretch of line. We just want to work on this little bit. And we can do that because we know exactly which bit it is because we now have the technology to facilitate that and to let everyone who needs to know, know. Which brings us to the Railway Work, Life and Death project that Mike is heading up in collaboration with the National Railway Museum in York and the University of Warwick. A team of volunteers have been working to create an online record of railway accidents going back over 150 years, with those transcriptions and data available at the touch of a button. But why is this project so important? We've been helped by the Office of Rail and Road, who deal with some of the safety issues that we've been looking at. They're very interested in understanding their past and seeing how that can be applied for the future and other safety organisations within the industry. Network Rail has been interested in it, again, from this idea of saying, well, what do we know about what's happened in the past? How can we turn that into something useful for the future? So one of the ways that we're exploring within the industry is using the accident, the database, as a starting point 
and then saying, okay, look, we've got these cases. We need to turn these into learning points. Use them as a discussion focus with those in the industry today. Say, look, this is what's happened. We have an actual case here or actual cases. What's gone wrong? How would things differ today? What would you have done differently at that point? But what would you do differently now? So really kind of trying to work out how we can use these in a very practical, applied way to help improve worker safety to this day. As the quote goes, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. The project has transcribed over 21,000 cases so far, and with a number that big, it's important to remember that each case affected an individual human being. These are people, not just numbers. There's one case of a man called James Waring, who was injured in 1925 in Croys in Wales. He was, I think, crossing between two wagons. The wagons came together and he slipped and his arm was run over. He lost his arm. He appears in the database in that accident, but he also appears three years later. He's back at work, albeit with one arm, but still in the same role, still doing the same job. And again, that speaks a lot to what the industry was doing at the time in terms of employing disabled workers. Unfortunately, the second accident he has is fatal, you know, having this obviously horrific experience and then three years later dying in the same job. So there's cases like that. Sadly, one that's very local to us in Portsmouth. So just up the line in Swanwick in 1936, a young lad, he was 12, Eric Harding, and he was, as was common with the local school, they were, all the boys were given time off at the time of the strawberry harvest to load strawberries into the railway wagons to send them up to the market. And unfortunately, he was rushed between two wagons and died. And putting together the accident record that we have from the project in the database with the newspaper reports of the time and the census records, we can find out a bit more about him and his family. So we know from those records that he had two brothers who were also working packing strawberries in that same yard. We know that other workers had been crossing between the wagons, which they weren't supposed to do because it was a quicker way of getting across the lines. And they were being told, as was always the case with these situations, they had to keep the job going. They had to keep things moving as fast as they could. They might have been told not to, to go between the wagons, not to cross between the wagons, but how much was that actually being encouraged? Because they said, well, you've got to get the job done quicker. I think the really kind of sad thing about the whole story that stuck in my mind with that one is that his father, who'd been injured in the First World War, was working you know, in the village and heard that there'd been an accident at the yard. And... He immediately ran from his workplace saying, my God, I've got three boys up there. Unfortunately, it was one of his sons. It's when you see that level of detail, it's, that's really sad. And that's why kind of getting down to the individual names and understanding the people behind it is really important. You know, these weren't kind of extraordinary people doing kind of top-level things that some think people think about when they think about history. You know, this is really kind of down-to-earth stuff. This is everyday stuff. And that's why it's more important because... You know, with this number of accidents in the database and this number of accidents that kept happening, you know, this is a really common experience, unfortunately. It's repeated time and time again throughout the data that we've seen. So actually kind of being able to pin down and say, this one person might not have been important in the grand scheme of things in that sense and that understanding, but actually they, they were important. They did have a place in history and they have left a mark. Back to the present day. And with all these records available with a mouse click, and hopefully lessons learned as a result. What does the future on the railways look like? Is technology going to replace a further part of the workforce, and will it do it safely? There are absolutely calls to reduce the numbers of staff in various different roles on the railways. 
some of which are safety critical, which is really problematic, so particularly on board staff in trains. If they're talking about driver-only operation, for example, so you have one member of staff, the driver on the train. But there are all sorts of questions there about the safety of passengers and what happens in an emergency. How much can a driver keep aware of and keep control of in an emergency situation? What happens if that driver is incapacitated? There's all sorts of problems with some of these proposals which need to be properly thought through before anything is done. And at the moment, the jury is still out on whether or not these proposals have been thought through fully. This idea that, oh, well, the driver just drives, that's very rarely actually ever the case. The driver's doing all sorts of other things that are really important. Likewise, with the ticket staff in the offices, again, it's not just a question of they sell tickets. They don't just do that. They do an awful lot alongside, which doesn't necessarily immediately kind of come to mind or isn't captured perhaps in the job title, but is there and is really important. And again, questions there about, well, how far can you replace everyone with a machine? You can't in, in some ways. And that's going to be a real challenge going forwards. The Railway Work, Life and Death Project is an exciting resource, both from a rail safety and a historical research perspective. People around the country have even been researching into their family histories and finding stories of their relatives that would not have been found elsewhere. We had an email in recently from a, a woman, Linda, and she said, your project popped up on my husband's Facebook feed recently. I went and checked the project and we found some information about my aunt's father. We knew that he died. We didn't know how what happened, but you were able to kind of unlock that piece of the puzzle for us, which was really important and really helpful for my aunt because her mother was pregnant with her at the time. So she never knew her father because he died just before she was born. And now she knew that bit more about what happened. So kind of these accidents happened in that case, that was late 1930s, you know, 80, 90 years ago, but they still have an impact today. And people are still able to find out more. And this isn't something that's kind of dry and dusty and confined to the archives. It still has real-life resonances to this day. And that's really important, hearing from people with those stories. It's unlikely that anyone is against the idea of increasingly safe railways. And whilst unions, rail operators and the public might have different ideas on how that ambition is reached, an understanding of the history of the rail network can inform our safety procedures today. Patterns and statistics are important, but so are the thousands of people's stories that have already been transcribed in the project, helping researchers and families find out more about those who worked on the rails over the centuries. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to the website port.ac.uk. And you can find more stories of how research here is changing our world by following this podcast on your favourite app and exploring our back catalogue.